Good morning, Life Church Livonia. If this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Life Church Livonia. If this is your first time, welcome. I am so glad you are here. I want to direct your attention for a moment to our digital bulletin. Our digital bulletin is our one stop shop. Everything going on at Life Church Livonia can be found there with more details, with places to RSVP and sign up. If something uh, is happening in your life or during the sermon, God is moving in your heart and you want to reach out to us and connect, there's also a link to do that on the digital bulletin. It is our greatest resource for you. One of the things we have going on right now is next week, we have some summer small groups starting up. These small groups are going to be meeting for six meetings. And we have a small group uh, that's on anxiety. Right now it's women only. We're looking for a male leader to co-lead that. So if you're interested, let us know. I'll talk about that more in my sermon. And then also, uh, we just have a Bible study. So those are both starting up next week. And, and I really encourage you, click on that digital bulletin and sign up so that we can uh, get you connected and you can grow together with God's people here at Life Church Livonia. I also want to encourage you if you call Life Church Livonia home, please give. Giving is how our ministry is sustained. None of us came into this world with anything and none of us will leave with anything. And we give uh, as an act of worship to God. In the Bible, we see this precedent of giving 10% a tithe of our income. And in the book of Micah, God straight up says, Hey, if you don't trust me in this, test me. I dare you. Give to me and I'm going to bless you beyond measure. And certainly my wife Amber and I have seen that in our lives uh, in total abundance. So if you call Life Church Livonia home, I encourage you to give throughout the summer months so that we can continue our ministry. And if you're, again, just a guest here, just be our guest. No pressure. Well, with that being said, we're going to jump into uh, week number two of our series on the Psalms. I'm preaching this week, and then next week we have Bob Hoy coming. And the couple weeks after, we're going to have different guest speakers throughout the summer. I'm really looking forward to that. I really encourage you, please come back next week to see Bob. And with that being said, I just want to begin our time with a short prayer to center our hearts on the Lord. So Lord, we just come before you today uh, wanting to hear from you. Lord, we're not here uh, just to feel good or just to um, uh, soothe our own egos in some way, Lord, but we want to hear from the, the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord, we want to know that you're real. We want to know that you're here. We want to know that you change things and that you can change us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, happy 4th of July weekend, everybody. I can't believe it's July already. And this week we're going to be celebrating that the Re Revolutionary War was won hundreds of years ago so that you and I might be able to be here in freedom to celebrate and practice our religion freely in this country, that we might be able to disagree and speak openly freely in this country. And I'm praying that continues. And a couple weeks ago on June 19th, we recognized that, that freedom to participate in democracy, to practice our own religion, to have free speech, that that actually was extended to everybody in our country, not just the rich, not just the powerful, not just the landowner. And so we're celebrating that, and I think very soon soberly uh, this this week as we celebrate 4th of July about our brothers and sisters in China and the Chinese underground church um, who do not get to celebrate these things and who are not free to practice their own religion. And I think about our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who have to give up uh, their lives at times and sometimes different limbs and their families just the immense sacrifice in other places that goes into following Jesus. And I'm grateful for our freedom to do that here 
And I just soberly reflect on and pray over our brothers and sisters in Christ who do not have that freedom in other places. Well, like I said, today is week two of our series on the Psalms. Uh, This is a series we're calling Psalms, A Cry of the Soul. And Psalms, unlike other biblical books, is not a book that's filled with moral pleas to change. Instead, it's this symphony of the human experience. As real people struggle through real life and yet encounter our real God in that. This book is filled with people praying boldly, praising fully and honestly, coming to before God with all their grief, all their pain, all their joy, all their anxiety, all their creativity, and every other aspect of the human experience. And today we're going to continue our series with Psalm 23. And uh, I just want to read that for you really briefly now. It's only six verses. It's a short psalm. And then we're going to jump into the rest of our time. Psalm 23 is Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In 1947, W.H. Auden wrote his seminal work, a six-part long, long-form poem that won the 1948 Pulitzer Prize. The name of the poem was The Age of Anxiety. It struck a chord with the American people who were frazzled and exhausted and broken economically and socially socially and emotionally and in the family unit because these people in 1947 had just spent the past 30 years living through World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II. For those people who were 30 or under, all they had known up to this point in their lives was war and hunger and trauma. And for everyone over 30... They had lost friends, lost family members, lost homes, and lost the life and the way of life they had before these traumatic events. In this poem, The Age of Anxiety, Auden describes the failures of a purely materialistic and scientific worldview in the face of such overwhelming hardships and traumas. He follows the conversations in this poem of four different characters that meet at a bar. And the night at this bar ends in unfulfilled hopes, but also ends in a few of the characters turning towards God as they look for peace and hope and purpose and meaning in this age of anxiety. Over 75 years later in our day, Auden's title and concepts are still so relevant. The Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey found that in 2023, 32.3% of adults reported anxiety and depression symptoms. And that number rose for people between ages 18 and 24. That number rose to 50% of adults reporting anxiety and depression symptoms. Statistically speaking, and I would guess personally as well, that means every single one of us knows multiple people who struggle with anxiety and depression. And maybe you're one of those people where you go, yeah, I mean, that's me. You know, not to mention that most of us know people who are using addictions to run from these very difficult feelings. We live in an age of anxiety. 
My wife Amber is a counselor and spends a lot of her time with clients helping them work through their anxiety. And in the clinical practice she's a part of, they define anxiety like this. Anxiety is a mental and physical reaction to a perceived threat. In small doses, anxiety is helpful. It protects us from danger and focuses our attention on problems. But when anxiety is too severe or occurs too frequently, it can become debilitating. So there, with anxiety, there's something out there that uh, is scary and I feel that in here in my body. Symptoms of anxiety are uncontrollable worry, excessive nervousness, sleep problems, muscle tension, poor concentration, increased heart rate, upset stomach, and avoidance of things that trigger the fear. Anxiety comes in different forms. It can be just about things in general, which they would call generalized anxiety disorder. It can be about something specific, which is called a phobia. Or it can be a sense of panic, which is a different thing altogether. Anxiety is triggered by avoidance. Avoiding stuff, people, things, places. Because we think the more I avoid the thing that makes me afraid, the more control I'll have over my anxiety. But this actually doesn't work. And again, another resource from Therapist Age shows us that this avoidance may provide a short-term relief, but actually increases our anxiety over time, leading to greater debilitation. Friends, this is not God's plan for you. This is not God's plan for me. Jesus came that we might have life and life to the full. And when Jesus is our model, we see him as the Prince of Peace, not the King of Anxiety. And I don't say that to shame anyone. In 2018 and 2019, I was in counseling for a good while to retreat my own anxiety and depression. And by God's grace, I grew in that season and came to some deep awarenesses that helped me move out of that anxiety so that I'm, I'm not struggling with it anymore right now. And this may be something you're currently struggling with, but it does not define you. And it doesn't have to keep defining you. God doesn't want you to stay stuck in anxiety, and it's not God's will for you or me to be stuck in it at all. So you may have heard of the term non-anxious presence. This refers to somebody whose personal inner peace is able to calm a group of people who were not at peace before. I call people with a non-anxious presence people of peace. Because rather than pouring out their inner anxiousness into a situation, making things even more tense and even more stressful, they are so overflowing with the peace of Christ, their inner world and that peace pours out onto situations around them, creating calm where there once was chaos. And we see Jesus do this all the time. This is God's will for you. And this is God's will for me, that we would be one of his people of peace. So the question I want to ask today as we look at Psalm 23 is how do we become people of peace in an age of anxiety? Psalm 23 is one of the most famous poems ever written. It's quoted in rap music, it's quoted in pop culture, it's quoted in movies, it's quoted in books. It's so prolific and it has been a source of great hope, encouragement, and peace for millions of people across thousands of years. Psalm 22, which we talked about last week, is a psalm of grief and loss. And it's no mistake that this psalm comes right after that. That this psalm of peace comes immediately following the grief and loss. This psalm was written by King David. We saw that in the very beginning of the psalm itself. 
David was the second king of Israel, and by all accounts, David should have been an anxious person whose reign was marked by his anxiety. He had multiple seasons of life where he was hunted by his own family members to be killed. He lived as a political refugee, being homeless and living in caves. He had strained family relationships in his family of origin that fed into really big problems in the family he created later. And that, those problems led to the death of four of his children, which is just so tragic. He famously murdered a man to steal his wife and was confronted publicly by God. He was constantly at war for most of his life. And for those of you who have been to war, you know the after effects that David must have been struggling with. He was a public figure and therefore he was not always liked. And the court of public opinion did not always rule in David's favor. But despite all these things, we do not see David's life as a life marked by anxiety. Instead, we see David pen a psalm like Psalm 23, which is one of the most famous songs of peace ever written. My hope today is that as we walk through Psalm 23 verse by verse, to see, we're going to see what this psalm teaches us about how to be people of peace in an age of anxiety. So the psalm simply begins with this. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And this is in the ESV. I love in the NIV it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I'll come back to that later, but it's so powerful. One of the interesting things to notice right off the bat is notice the subtitle here just says a psalm of David. Normally in that slot, they would have some kind of instruction to the music director or to musicians or what the tune of it was. And the fact that this psalm doesn't have that means this psalm was probably not originally written to be a corporate song sung in church. It seems that this was probably more of a personal, intimate journal entry as David had an intimate moment with the Lord. Now that doesn't mean it was never sung in church or used in that way. It just means that David wasn't writing it for that express intention most likely. The opening line of the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, is imagery that is very personal and very familiar to David. Like I said, David was the second king of Israel, but before he was king, he was a war hero. And before he was a war hero, he was the giant killer who slayed Goliath. And before he was the giant killer, he was just a shepherd. He was just a shepherd. David spent much of his youth out in the wilderness with his sheep and most likely a harp or a lyre of some kind. And from that place of experience, David calls God his shepherd. Not his judge, not his moral compass, not his religion, not his power. God is all of those things. All those things are true. But David's posture towards God was that of the God being his shepherd and David being his sheep. Now, our culture is not built around raising livestock and agriculture in this way. And so we don't have this normal experience of everyday life. So this metaphor is not something we quite get intuitively. So I want to fill in a little bit of a, a gap in our own experiential knowledge. Shepherds, I hope it's obvious, take care of and lead sheep, right? But this is why that's so important. You see, sheep have a strong instinct to follow the sheep in front of them. When one sheep decides to go somewhere, the rest of the flock usually follows, even if it's not a good decision. For example, sheep will follow each other to slaughter. If one sheep jumps off a cliff, the others are likely to follow. Even from birth, lambs are conditioned to follow older members of the flock. And this instinct is hardwired into the brain of the sheep. It's not something they think about, it's just something they do. 
Not only that, but due to their undeveloped depth perception and the fact that sounds reach their ears different times, at slightly different times, a sheep's perception of reality is only semi-accurate. And the sheep, uh, shepherd can see farther and clearer than the sheep. As well as, the shepherd can see incoming dangers much better than the sheep. Sheep have no natural defense mechanisms. When a predator attacks them, they either congregate together or just try to run away and hope they're not the slowest sheep. It's not, not a great look, not a great defense mechanism. And what all these things mean together is that sheep are one of the few animal species that live longer and fuller and more thriving lives, not on their own in the wild, but under the care of a shepherd. They are an animal species that lives better domesticated than wild. Without a shepherd, they're prone to wander, they're prone to get lost and eaten, and they're prone to blindly follow a fellow sheep into death and danger. So the shepherd leads the sheep in order that the sheep may flourish. We all have shepherds. All of us have people, ideas, philosophies, and guides that we use to help discern and direct and decide where we're going to go in life. But not every shepherd is a good shepherd. And David says that God is a good shepherd. And he goes on to talk about why. He says in verse 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Sheep are skittish. And therefore, running water is something that scares them. Now, it's a misnomer to say they can't drink out of running water. It's more uh, accurate to say they won't or don't like to drink out of running water. Um, and so the idea that he leads me beside still waters is the idea that the shepherd would find and create a space for the sheep that's uh, not only able to help them survive, but where the sheep feels safe to satisfy its needs. Because they could drink out of the running water and survive just fine. But they wouldn't be relaxed. The sheep wouldn't be comfortable. Wouldn't be at peace. The reason the shepherd would lead them to quiet waters would be for their peace, not just their survival. Additionally, plants don't grow the same rate all year round. Again, this is not something we have a lot of experiential knowledge of here in the suburbs. Some plants do most of their growing in cool weather like winter or fall, whereas others produce the most growth during warmer months. And again, this is in the Mediterranean circle. Israel is not Michigan, so their winters are not just like desolate snow, right? There's different kinds of plant life there. But what this means is the shepherd is aware of the different plants that grow at different times of the years and lead sheep to new places constantly so that they might continue to get what they need to grow. Similarly, God leads you and I to new places, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, so that you and I might continue to grow and flourish. And he knows what we need for each season. David says that this is what God is like. He doesn't just take care of our needs, but he does so in a way that intentionally brings us peace and stillness, that intentionally helps us grow. He leads us to new places through different seasons so that we might continue to mature and flourish. Not only that, but David says God not only sustains him tangibly, but he, in fact, cares for David's soul, not just his physical needs. And that's true for you and me. David goes on to say, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This verse calls back to the beginning of the Old Testament, when God called Abraham to be the first of the people of God. I've heard it rightly said that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created people, 
and the rest of the Bible, God is trying to create a certain kind of person. A person who thinks like, talks like, moves like, speaks like, acts like, loves like Jesus. Loves like him. God called Abraham out to be the beginning of the people of God. And he tells Abraham that he has been blessed so that all other nations in the world might also be blessed through him. And David knows that. He can see that the care and shepherding of the Lord is not just for his own sake, but it's also for the sake of being an example to the lost world of what it means to live in loving union with God. This is true for us as well. We represent the Lord and we represent the Lord to the world that he wants to save. Personal holiness matters because we don't just represent us, we represent Jesus. Corporate holiness matters, how we act as a group, because we don't just represent us, we represent Jesus. Our life is bigger than just our own well-being. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are given peace to be peacemakers and peace bringers, not just for our own comfort. He heals our anxiety so that we can be people of peace and bring a non-anxious presence into other people's lives, not just so that we can be comfortable. David goes on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, when I was younger, I'd read this passage and I'd go like, okay, really? I mean, like, if you're powerful enough to lead through the valley, why not just go around it? I mean, wouldn't that be better, right? Like, why all this drama of, like, the shadow of death and, like, can't you just go around the valley? What is such a big deal about this? Why do we have to go through the valley? And I just get frustrated. You know what I mean? Like, like what is going on here, Lord? But since I've become a dad, I think I'm beginning to understand why the Lord leads David and us through valleys instead of around them. You see, life is full of hardship. I don't think anyone would deny that. And like we said earlier, anxiety is triggered by avoidance. So to go around the valley is to avoid it. This will not grow people who are a blessing. This will grow people who are anxious about life's difficulties. When we follow Jesus, we are blessed to be a blessing exactly in the hardest places of life. It's exactly in the valleys of life that we need to bring Jesus. And we see this in Jesus, right? Jesus is sent in the world to take on the sins of the whole world. That is the apex of a valley situation, of a difficult situation. And that's not because God is displeased with Jesus. It's not because God is resentful against Jesus. It's because God wants to be where people are that he might save them and bring them back to him. God doesn't just show up in those valley places as a disembodied spirit. He shows up through his people which is you and which is me, which means that God will lead you and I into places of death that we might be bringers of life and places of darkness that we might be bringers of light. And these places are hard. Furthermore, when we save our kids from difficult things, we send them this message. We effectively tell them, you don't have what it takes to do hard things. Hard circumstances mean you need to be rescued because you can't trust yourself and you can't trust your community and you can't trust your Lord to help you get through this. You don't need courage, you need saving. Others are capable, but not you. This teaches our kids to be anxious in the midst of difficulty and to try to avoid it by being rescued. Good parents don't save their kids from every valley. They help their children walk through valleys so their children learn I can do hard things. 
When life doesn't go well, I have what it takes to navigate that. I can trust myself, I can trust my community, and I can trust my God to lead me to the other side of this thing. I don't have to be anxious, even though this is difficult. The Father in heaven is a good parent. So he takes David through the valley and not around it. And in doing so, he parents David out of the avoidance of anxiety and into engagement. Notice also that it says, in this valley, there's the shadow of death. That always struck me as interesting too. I was like, why the shadow of death, right? What, what does this mean? And then I just began to kind of ask myself questions like, well, can a shadow hurt you? No. Can a shadow scare you? Yes. Remember, anxiety is triggered by perceived threats. The shadow is a perceived threat. But shadows can't hurt us. Furthermore, if death is casting a shadow, a shadow isn't attached to nothing, right? It's attached to something. So if death is casting the shadow, it means death's there. But David is in death's shadows, not in death's hands. Why? Well, in order for something to cast a shadow, it means there needs to be light shining from behind it. And the reason that David is in death's shadows, not in death's hands, is because of the light that is watching over him. In the book of Exodus, uh, there's this moment where the angel of death is sweeping throughout Egypt. And the Hebrew people are ordered by God to take the blood of a pure lamb and put it over their doorposts. And when the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb, it will not be able to touch them. Jesus is the light of the world and Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He calls himself the good shepherd. Because of God's shepherding hand with David, death cannot touch him. It can only scare him into running away from the shepherd, which would actually be what puts him in danger. Under Jesus, death cannot touch us. We will all certainly die, but death has lost its sting because Jesus rose from the dead and when we trust in him, so will we. Death is no longer the end. And this is why David can be in death's shadow and not be afraid and anxious. One last note on this stanza before we move on. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What is a rod and what is a staff? Well, the rod is for protection. It's what helps the shepherd fend off predators that would come and seek to eat the sheep. So David is saying, I know that you will protect me, Lord, and I'm comforted by knowing that the things in this world that are more powerful than me are not more powerful than you, and you have what it takes to protect me from them. Secondly, if the rod is for protecting, the staff is for correcting. The staff is able to pull back a sheep that is going astray so they don't get lost or hurt themselves or get eaten. God can correct us through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. And sometimes I hear people say things like, well, if the Lord doesn't want me to do it, let him correct me. But you're not reading his word. And when his people come and say, hey, I'm concerned about this, you say, well, why don't I hear it from him? And then you're not even listening to the Holy Spirit. So people can be hard hearted about this. But God corrects us through his word, his people and his spirit. And David takes comfort in this as well, saying, essentially, the other reason he can be at peace in the valleys of life while death is looming over him is because not only is God able to protect him from external threats, but God's even only able to protect David from his own self through guidance and correction. This trust in God's leading and protection leads David to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David paints this image of being in this valley surrounded by enemies. 
but protected by his shepherd. And though his enemies can see him and he can probably see them, he trusts so much in his shepherd, he can relax and have a meal. David has so much faith and trust in God, he can basically have a party in the presence of the people who are against him, and he does not feel that he needs to live in avoidance in order to live in peace. Think about that. Who are the people that you feel are actively against you? And maybe if you feel like you're your own worst enemy, who are the people in your inner critic, on the bleachers of your inner critic stand that you feel like are regularly against you? Would you feel like you could be at total peace and eat a leisurely meal uh, with them sitting around you? Though David is surrounded by threats, he knows he's not in danger because his shepherd is with him. And after this imagery of the table, David talks about anointing oil. See, in the Old Testament, anointing oil was used on kings and priests when they were called by God. There was a specific mixture of herbs and olive oil that were poured over the heads of the people God was calling in his purposes and into leadership. The way the oil covered them was a physical symbol of God covering them. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is covering you. Furthermore, this is a cool thing too, there's a little bit of an illusion, a, a metaphor, a looking forward to Christ in this because the, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. And so we see a little bit of that parallel in here, which is, which is just a cool little thing. Finally, David ends with this. He says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David ends this psalm in a place of goodness, of mercy, of peace, and of rest. And I believe this ending isn't just a statement, it's an invitation. In this psalm, David gives us a vision of a non-anxious life. The life of a person of peace. A life that can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That it, a life that's not without enemies, but does not let death's shadows or lurking enemies determine its attitude, its posture, or its peace. So how do we move from being a person of anxiety to being uh, the people of peace? Well, first, I just want to say, uh, I really struggled to figure out what to include and not to include in this section of the sermon because there's just so many good resources, so many different therapy models, so many different tools. And if you're feeling stuck in your anxiety right now, I just want you to hear there are so many good resources to help you. All you need to do is to reach out and ask, and we would love to connect you with some. Two of those resources I want to point you to are one, a good counselor. Okay, we have connections through our church that can help you get counseling at whatever you can pay. So please don't let price be an option. I've been in counseling. It was so rich, and I just cannot recommend it highly enough. Number two, my wife Amber, who is a counselor, is running a summer small group on anxiety beginning next week, the week of July 9th. Now, currently, this is a woman's only group. We would love to offer this group to both men and women, but we need a male co-leader to lead it with her. And so if you hear that and you go, oh no, and you feel that little thing in your heart, maybe the Holy Spirit might be calling you to step out in faith here, because we're praying. We're praying that God would bring someone to open this group up to men and women, because we just think it is for such a time as this, that uh, the things that this group is doing are so powerful. And so I would really encourage you, if you're a woman, please sign up. If you're a guy and you're interested, please let us know, because we're hoping to open this group up to both men and women.
So now back to our question, how do we become people of peace? Well, I wanna quickly highlight three core beliefs that we see in Psalm 23, because these core beliefs create peace in David and have the power to do the same for us. Our core beliefs about life, about ourselves, about God, about others, it's these core beliefs that create our thoughts and feelings. And then those thoughts and feelings create behaviors, right? And so our, when we ch- are able to change our core beliefs, we're able to change our life. David's first core belief is that God is his shepherd. What this means is David doesn't have to know where to go. He doesn't have to know how to get there. He doesn't need to know when he arrives. He doesn't need to know where the still streams are. He doesn't have to figure out how he's going to meet all his own needs with the green grass. God is his shepherd and God will lead him. David believes in his bones that if he just follows the Lord, the Lord will take care of all of his needs. David does not have to imagine the worst case scenario and prep a plan with three backup plans because God is his shepherd and his shepherd has a rod to defend him from all of life's troubles. David also doesn't need to constantly critique and evaluate himself, hoping that he isn't making a mistake. Because his shepherd has a staff, and his shepherd will lead and correct him through his word as people in his spirit. And this is so important. David's focus is not on his problems and anxieties. David's not focused on his fear, but he's focused on his father. When we focus on our fears and anxieties, we give them power. And if we focus on our good shepherd, that power is taken from them. His focus is not on his fear, but on his father. You like that alliteration? You can have that. You don't even have to quote me. You can just say it, you know? David's second core belief is that God is bigger than every enemy, both internal and external. David is so confident in God's power that he says that even death cannot touch him because the light of God shining upon it. Even the end of all things is not the end to David because of David's good shepherd. David's shepherd is not just stronger than his enemies, it's even stronger than the enemy of life itself. Not only that, but David believes his shepherd is so strong that he can create a space that allows David to sit down and leisurely meet his needs in the midst of everything in his inner world and outer world that would seek to attack him, disarm him, discourage him, and dethrone him. God is so strong. His enemies don't even need to be vanquished in order for there to be peace. The enemies can't affect David's peace. Because uh, the shepherd created that peace. That's how strong the shepherd is. The shepherd is so strong that the, the peace he makes is untouchable. David believes at his core that the full strength of his enemies is weaker than God's peace. And the last thing David believes is that God has called him for a purpose. David says that God has anointed his head with oil and leads him for the sake of God's own name. David believed in his very center. He wasn't being led places randomly. He wasn't experiencing valleys randomly. He wasn't receiving peace or random comfort for random troubles. But that God had called him for a purpose and that all of David's life was overflowing with meaning as a cup overflows with wine. David was blessed to be a blessing. He was given peace to be a peacemaker. He was given power to be a bearer of God's kingdom. His life was so much bigger than his own agenda, his own problems, his own preferences, and his own comfort. He was not just a sheep. He was God's sheep. And he was anointed until his cup overflowed. 
Remember, anointing oil was used by, in the Old Testament to call people to God's purposes as priests and rulers. The olive oil would overflow down their heads and seep into their pores, saturating them and becoming part of them. And when we receive Jesus' sacrifice for our sins and we believe in his resurrection and his way of life and follow him as Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and saturates us, making us a part of God's purposes as part of his royal priesthood. David was able to write this psalm as a person of peace because he believed, God is my shepherd. God is stronger than every enemy, and God has called me for a purpose. Those are David's core beliefs, and those beliefs shaped his thoughts and feelings. And then those thoughts and feelings shaped his behavior. Now, now that we have a couple core beliefs, uh, I want to give you a couple simple practices, just two simple practices as we close here. The first simple practice is I just want you to begin to notice your own fears and anxiousness. I do this through silence every morning. Essentially, rather than judging my inner monologue or just like trying to constantly solve a problem in my head or becoming judgmental about myself, like, oh, I'm such an idiot. If I had faith, I wouldn't be thinking that again. Just try to non-judgmentally notice. For me, this looks like setting a timer. And I just start to close my eyes. And as things come to mind, that thing that so-and-so said yesterday, that project that's still not done, that embarrassing moment I had, I wish I could have done differently. As these things start to come to mind, I just write them down. I just write them down. And I ask questions like, what thoughts are connected? Is there a theme here? What feelings do I have about this? Am I feeling embarrassed or angry or afraid? Or what's going on in my inner world? And then, God, how are you trying to meet me in this? How are you trying to speak to me through my own feelings? So I wrote those things down and I encourage you to do the same. And then after we notice, we pray. And I just want you to pray a very simple prayer over the, that list of anxieties that come up. I just want you to pray this prayer from John Eldridge. He says, I give everything and everyone to you, God. I give everything and everyone to you, God. And I would add to that, because you are my good shepherd. I give everything and everyone to you, God, because you are my good shepherd. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not all the tools we have in dealing with anxiousness, but this is a really good start to simply notice and to pray. As we close, I just want to say that all of this is only true in Jesus. Death is not a shadow without Jesus. We do not have a table in the presence of our enemies without Jesus. We do not have eternal and lasting purpose without Jesus. We don't have a peace that holds true despite our circumstances without Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you believe in Jesus, but you have not been following him, you've been following yourself. I just want to, I want to invite you to begin to follow Jesus as your good shepherd. And I want you to know that Jesus came from heaven to earth as God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect and sinless life so that all of your sins and all of my sins might be put to death on the cross because our sins separate us from God. Our sins create hell on earth. And if you haven't been following Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The decisions you've made that have just created these situations where you go, this is hell. 
this is horrible. This is not what life is meant to be at all. And I know, I know you've chased things just like I have that promised you peace, that promised you hope, that promised you meaning, and they gave you death. And I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if that's you, God wants to be your shepherd and he wants to lead you out of death and into life and life in all its fullness. When Jesus died on the cross, he put our sins to death. And when he rose from the dead, he rose so that you and I might have intimacy with the Lord through him. That when God looks at us, he sees Jesus's perfection. And through that intimacy, we find life and life in all its fullness, both in this life and in eternity. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to simply pray with me. Lord, I have looked for peace in so many places, in my addictions, in my avoidance. Lord, I've, I've killed some of the best relationships in my life over this. I've let things go, Lord, that I regret. And God, I, I need you to lead me because the things I've been following are not working. And so, Lord, I repent. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again so that I might have life and life to the full, both in this life and the next. And Lord, I pray that you would lead me right now. I ask that you would give me your Holy Spirit and that you would show me, Lord, what to do next so that I might become this person of peace who has purpose and meaning and a calling that is bigger than myself, that I might find life and life to the full. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us via our digital bulletin because we want to walk alongside you. We want to help you take your next steps in following Jesus. And if uh, you're just joining us here, welcome to week two of our series. I encourage you to check out week one on grief and I encourage you to come back next week as Bob Hoyd takes us through Psalm 25 and we learn about dealing with our enemies. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy 4th of July week, and we'll see you next week.